John 12:27 and 28a part 2 a wonderful section of scripture very uh, mysterious uh, i think at first um, somewhat shocking um, but then i think when you you dive in and put all the pieces together The Lord is signifying through the words that he speaks to us that he's very man. He has assumed human nature, body, and soul. He experienced internal trouble as he contemplated his wrath-bearing death before he was even on the cross. Before the Garden of Gethsemane, we have a pre-Gethsemane-like Uh, entrance into his soul. Now my soul is troubled. So I had some contemplations from the uh, first uh, sermon this morning. Uh, the, The one I had mentioned then was, we have here a clear indication of the true or real humanity of our Lord. Now my soul is troubled. This trouble of soul wasn't a constant perpetual experience 24-7 of our Lord during his state of humiliation or his incarnate state on the earth. But it was an experience of our Lord. At times, there is this sorrow, uh, we could say uh, is true of him, that he experienced in light of circumstances that he faced. He is very God and yet very man, One person, two natures, one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. So our Lord is very man. But also, another contemplation would be this. We have here a clear indication that our Lord experienced true and real trouble or grief. Sometimes this might be odd to think about that. During his state of humiliation, his incarnate state while on earth, between the womb and the tomb, our Lord experienced true and real trouble or grief. This trouble, grief, this agitation of soul experienced by our Lord was real. Okay, we don't say... Well, it seemed real to him, but it wasn't real human grief he experienced. Throughout history, heretics have said that. Well, he, he kind of looked like that, but that's not really what he was. It looked like he was experiencing grief. It sounds like he was, but he really wasn't. Uh, he wasn't very man after all. He was just kind of like a man. Superman or whatever. We don't want to do that. We don't want to say that. We're not doing that. We're not saying that. We're saying whatever this agitation, this trouble of soul, it was real. Um, I mentioned earlier today, Isaiah 53.3, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Sorrows and acquaintance with grief is the way the prophetic Isaiah speaks about the servant of the Lord to come in the future who has come in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Our confession in chapter 8, paragraph 2 says this, The Son of God did, when the fullness of time was come, take unto him man's nature. Now watch what we confess. With all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. See that common infirmities? That which is common to humans living on this earth, this side of the fall into sin, is to have information come to them that can cause uh, trouble, that can cause grief, that can cause sorrow, that if not dealt with properly can actually translate into sin. That never happened to our Lord But he did assume all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. So we could say this, he took to himself creaturely liabilities, this side of the fall into sin, yet without sin. Creaturely liabilities of living in a cursed world. Uh, One of them is the fear of death. Do you think Jesus had this sense of troublement of soul uh, in light of the type of death he was going to die? And I think the answer is yes. Uh, And we dealt with this this morning. Is it that was it therefore sinful? And the answer was no, he is not capable of that, but he is capable of trouble. He is capable of sorrow. He is capable of grief. And anytime those kind of passions came upon him, they never bore fruit, uh, uh, the the fruit of actual transgression. In fact, I think this morning I pointed out, it seems like he's he's checking this, this common infirmity that he has assumed, grief, sorrow, trouble. It seems like He has it because he says, my soul is troubled. And then he immediately checks it. Tempted in all things and yet without sin, as we read from Hebrews. A third and final contemplation is this. We have here a clear indication that our Lord handled true and real trouble or grief. That he experienced it yet without sin. Not only that he experienced it, but that he experienced it without sin. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we could say he was acquainted with grief, sorrow, trouble of soul, but he didn't sin. Here's Uh, our old friend Cyril of Alexandria, the word of God united to himself the entire nature of man in order to save the whole of man. I'll explain what he means by that. It's fascinating. For what is not assumed is not not healed. Again, here's our confession. The Son of God did when the fullness of time was come take Into him, man's nature, 
with all its essential properties, body, soul, and all the faculties of soul, and common infirmities. The word of God, united to himself, the entire nature of man, in order to save the whole of man for what is not assumed is not healed. So, for us, and for our salvation, our Lord assumes body and soul. In terms of his soul, he experiences trouble or grief, a common infirmity. In terms of his body, he experienced death, separation of the soul from the body. Here's Cyril again. Just as death was destroyed in no other way than the Savior dying, so it is with each of the passions of the flesh. If he had not been troubled, our nature would not have been freed from fear. What is he talking about there? Well, he's saying this. Everybody else faces troubles of life and and doesn't pass the test. Fear, uh, agitation, based on contemplation of a potential thing happening with us often produces either cowardice or, or arrogance, where there ought to be humility in the face of real danger. Or the lack of the trust, trust in God and his promises. Or sinful angry anger because I don't deserve this. Or whatever. He says, just as death was destroyed no other way than the Savior dying, so it is with each of the passions of the flesh. If he had not been troubled, our nature would not have been freed from fear. If he had not grieved, there could never have been any deliverance from grief. He's sanctifying trouble. He's sanctifying grief. He's conquering these passions that can lead to sin and transgressions. He's experiencing them without sinning because nobody else has ever done that. In order to be righteous in God's presence, you have to be, you have to do that. If he didn't assume those things, they wouldn't be healed. We wouldn't have a whole righteousness in him. We'd have to supplement it with our own. If he had not been troubled and alarmed, there would have been no escape from these conditions. For every human experience, you will find the same corresponding experience in Christ. This is Cyril again. The passions of the flesh are stirred up, however, not to overcome him as they do us, but so that once they are stirred up, they may be destroyed, transforming our nature to a better condition, end quote. Obviously, you don't like that quote as much as I did when I originally read it and put it in my notes. It's, it, it's actually profound. It's a patristic author way back in the 4th, 5th century saying things that get more clearer, I think, uh, uh, press in the 17th century when the covenant theologians among the Reformed are working out this first and last Adam Christology where they see Adam the last assumes the nature endowed upon Adam the first that he sinned in. 
He assumes that nature, along with the infirmities that come with possessing that nature, this side of the fall into sin, and in, on the devil's own turf, he wins the day. He is the last Adam who assumes our nature, who assumes our duties. Now my soul is troubled because he's going to assume our liabilities in order to repair our nature and in him bring it to heaven and in him bring us with him to glory. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful patristic th- uh, contemplation on, this is John chapter 12. It's all throughout the Christian tradition. It sometimes it, it gets clearer. It's there in the Bible. We just don't always you know, put all the pieces together. Now this is why we sing the following. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. Okay, blood is signifying his death. Righteousness is signifying his obedience. My beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, blood and righteousness, beauty, glorious dress, with joy I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved through these, blood and righteousness. Fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. When from the dust of death I rise to claim my mansion in the skies, even then this shall be all my plea, Jesus hath lived. Now my soul is troubled, but not unto sin. Why? He's living, and he's going to die, which having looked back, he has died. He hath lived, hath died for me. Part of his living is in the assumption of the essential properties of human nature, along with the infirmities that come in light of the fall into sin, is to face fearful, dreadful circumstances and not sin in them. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Shall I give in? Now, you know, we want to, I think, sometimes over-eschatologize the state of humiliation. You know what I mean by that? Look at my King Jesus whooping on them heretics in the temple and doing this and doing that and doing the other. It wasn't, no, it's not like that. He's a man of sorrows. He didn't have a place to lay his head. He hungered and thirsted sometimes. He fed thousands and yet suffered the pains of hunger himself. Isn't that weird? You know, sometimes you could think, well, can he just like, you know. No, he's not in glory. He's not, we don't want to over escat. Very man. I think sometimes we we don't give proper due and credit to the real humanity of our Savior. And why why do we call his incarnate state between the womb and the tomb the state of humiliation? It's, It's a good word, by the way. It's a good phrase. Look it up in Muller's Dictionary if you have it. If you don't have it, don't worry about it. If you want to worry about it, ask me about that dictionary later and I'll tell you. But it's a wonderful... What is it... State of humiliation. What does that mean? The assumption of a real human nature by the Son of God 
first expressed, experienced in the womb of the virgin, develops this human nature, body and soul, grew in wisdom and stature among men, Luke chapter 2, experienced the common infirmities of living this side of the fall and ascend. The incarnate Son of God was troubled about the wrath-bearing death he would endure. It's like, yeah, but couldn't, couldn't he just call a legion of angels and yeah. Did he? No. Man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. He's, he's assuming our nature and he's experiencing all the different stages of life and the temptations to sin that come along with it. And he's beating the devil on his own turf. He's doing what the first Adam didn't do, beat the devil on God's, in God's house. And now in one sense, the Son of God beats the devil in the devil's house. Uh, and we'll see how the scripture sorts through all that as we work our way through this passage. By the way, he mentions the devil in the passage, doesn't he? The ruler of this world shall be cast out. A couple of the commentators on this passage were saying, Methinks the temptation by the devil in the wilderness isn't the whole story about how the devil tried to derail the incarnate Son of God. But he's going through all, he's experiencing all the, the phases of life in order to sanctify everyone so we have a full and complete righteousness. We can't say, Well, there's an area in my life that I sinned in that Jesus didn't cover. Covered them all. Fully absolved. Through these I am from sin and fear, from guilt and shame, when from the dust of death I rise to claim my mansion in the skies. Even then this shall be all my plea. Jesus hath lived, had died for me. Jesus be endless praises. Praise to thee whose boundless mercy hath for me, for me a full atonement made. An everlasting ransom paid. Oh, let the dead now hear thy voice. Now bid thy banished ones rejoice. Their beauty this. Their glorious dress. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. So here we have a clear indication that our Lord handled true and real trouble and grief. Remember I said some of the commentaries use a bunch of synonyms for the word troubled and make some of you uncomfortable fear we usually think well to fear something uh, in the creaturely way not god our reverence to fear something is to be a coward to be afraid to not know about the future and therefore be crippled by it and it's therefore necessarily always sinful to be fearful if fear is a synonym for troubled here the incarnate Son of God faced what, faced what we call fear in light of contemplating the type of death he would die under the wrath of God, but he didn't give way to it. He didn't give a, a foothold in his soul. He didn't allow passions to be fertilized. 
and give birth. Here's James 1. I read this this week, and I actually thought of this chapter. No, uh, 113, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, now it's going through a process here. Then, when desire has conceived, this would be illicit desire, right? It gives birth to sin. But we can't say what's happening in the soul of the incarnate Son of God is not temptation in any sense whatsoever. He was tempted in all things, yet without sin, right? And if he had this thing called fear presented to him, like this sense of dread because of some impending possible experience that he saw himself uh, undergoing, uh, it is natural for us to shrink from something like that, right? It would be unnatural to say, I don't care. Bring the wrath of God upon me. That would be like, no, he's very man, yet without sin. Um, Hebrews reads this way, and as much as then, the 2.14, the children have partaken of flesh and blood. He himself likewise shared in the same flesh and blood that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Through fear of death causes unbelievers to be in bondage to something. Uh, I think this is why uh, people get zippers inserted at the back of their neck and, and pull their skin back, stuff it in there, and zip it back up. They're trying to fight the inevitable. We decay. We're going to die. We're going to get wrinkles. We're going to get bags and bumps and things, and we're going to change and... And someday, it'll be our last breath. But fearing it with the fear of fright, horror, and scaredness, and not knowing what to do about it, causes people, I think, to get cosmetic. If you got cosmetic surgery for whatever reason, I'm not talking about you, because I have no idea if anybody in here did. But I think a lot of times people do that because of this very thing here, this fear uh, uh, of death. But he releases those uh, who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He did not indeed give help to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he was made to be like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to aid those who are tempted. So he got these things and these 
experiences of inward turmoil that we do, um, but he won every time. He didn't lose. And you can see that happening, I think, in our text. Now my soul is troubled, but what shall I say? Father, take me, remove me from this hour, not on your life. Real troubled soul experience by him. He checks it before it becomes a transgression of the law of God, and he he reasons his way through it um, by, by the way, invisible grace on his human nature that's going on behind the scenes that we can't see as well. And he does this for us and for our salvation. So that's my last observation. We have here a clear indication that our Lord handled true and real trouble or grief, yet without sin for us and for our righteousness before heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text of Scripture. We thank you for um, revealing and reminding us uh, and revealing to us the true manhood of the Savior. We confess he's very God and very man in one person, two natures, and yet one Christ, the one mediator between God and and man, we confess that there was a time when he was on the earth between the womb and the tomb where he could be called the man of sorrows, the man who suffered all throughout his life. The pinnacle of his sufferings were on the cross when he took the wrath and judgment and condemnation of heaven upon himself in our place, condemned he stood. We're the beneficiaries of all of this, not just the sufferings at the point of death, but all the sufferings throughout his life, including this soul suffering that we've looked at today. Help us to see uh, the glories of the incarnation more, to be more grateful, to be more thankful, and to follow our Lord and to be like him as we contemplate in our own way in life, what it might look like to give our lives up, to hate our lives in this world for the sake of eternal life in the name of Christ. He didn't just uh, boastfully um, um, proclaim those words or give himself up for the greater cause. He wrestled with it and concluded the honor of the name of the Father is what's most important here. The glory of God is what's most important here. Not only uh, uh, did he conclude that, we ought to as well. We're so weak, we need help. Strengthen us through the supper, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.